Welcome to EdTech Insiders. In this podcast, we talk to educators and educational technology investors, thought leaders, founders, and operators about the most interesting and exciting trends in the field. I'm your host, Alex Sarlin, an educational technology veteran with over a decade of work at leading EdTech companies. Hello, everyone. It's Ben Cornell alongside Alex Sarlin with This Week in EdTech. We're excited to come to you from New Orleans at the ISTE conference and excited to wrap up season one. We're on a hiatus in July before we kick off season two in August. Alex, you're not really taking time off. What are you going to be up to in July? <laughs> yeah, so I'm really excited. This has been such an incredible journey with the podcast. I have to take a little time to do a new startup, which I am calling fatherhood. So we are expecting our first child just in a less than a week. And then uh, from there, it's going to be some some leave and some time with sleeplessness and diapers and all of those fun things that I've heard about all these years, but never experienced firsthand. So really excited about that. But that said, the interview podcast will be continuing to be published throughout July. And we'll be back with new Week in Ed Tech in August. I may sound a little bit sleepier, but it'll, it'll be a lot of fun. It will certainly make for more interesting interviews and conversations in season two. <laughs> Why don't you kick us off with the headlines? Sure. So we're going to have a great guest at the end of this episode, which is Quinn Tabor of Immerse, a really exciting new VR startup that's sort of launching with Meta. But some really interesting headlines happening this week. first one is that if you live in the United States or follow the news at all, you've known that there have been enormous political changes in the U.S. over the last week, and they are actually already having impacts on campuses and schools. So I wanted to just talk through some of the sort of sturm und drang and, and chaos, you know, without taking any political, you know, stances. One, there was a really interesting article from Politico about how the changes to Roe versus Wade that came from the Supreme Court this week are going to have major effects on college campuses because student parents are 10 times less likely to graduate college on time than their peers without children. Student parents are actually pretty common. They're more than you might expect. So two in five Black women in college are mothers, according to a 2016 survey, and about 28% of all women in college are mothers. So you already have lots of student parents who are much less likely to graduate on time. And this change to policy may significantly increase the number of student parents or people in college age who are who are suddenly become parents. And it's without getting into the incredibly complex politics of this, it's a it's going to be really interesting. I think colleges have, have never been amazing at supporting student parents. That's not been their priority in most cases. And now they're facing a really uh, an increase in the number of services they need to deliver. I'm curious what you think about this, Ben. Well, we've talked in prior episodes about schools and education institutions becoming a locus point for services and service delivery. And as federal policy changes restricting the right to health care and access to healthcare, colleges are often called upon to step in. And just as physician practices and others are having to weigh their options in terms of what they can reasonably do to support their patients, colleges are in the same boat. And yep. questions arise around if a college, if a student on a college campus or who's enrolled in a college 
request support to travel out of state? Will the college or college organizations provide support for that, et cetera? So as you mentioned, we're going to see this play out in really complex ways, and probably each state will be really different. The other big policy event this week, besides Roe v. Wade, was the first meaningful gun reform action taken at the federal level. And it's in response to the Uvalde shooting. What we're also seeing in parallel and and part of this bill is really about defense at schools and how do we make schools a very safe place. Ironically, most of the data shows that schools are actually quite safe when it comes to gun violence and that actually gun violence outside of schools still outweighs the risks to younger people than in school. But we're seeing that there's a $5 million crisis management service that Cobb County School District in Marietta, Georgia has purchased. In 2021, schools and colleges in the United States spent $3.1 billion on security products and services compared with $2.7 million in 2017. And the legislation that I mentioned includes an additional $300 million to bolster school security. So connecting the dots here, the services that we talked about on the healthcare front, there's also safety services that are now going to be required and provided by schools and managing those services to ensure that they're delivered well and that schools are really safe will be a complex responsibility of administrators. It's also an important place where, you know, cyber defense as well as security technology companies will be coming in full force in education. It's a really interesting time for for this, because as you say, I think school shootings are so horrific. They're so memorable. We obviously have seen Columbine in the 1990s. We've seen Virginia Tech. We've seen the Marjorie Stoneman Douglas, which created an enormous movement. And now Uvalde just this year, which is after the $3 billion were spent in 2021. And they're so memorable. They're so, they stand out. They really rightfully scared the heck out of everyone. And it puts schools right at the forefront of this incredibly politicized movement. So it makes sense in some ways. Obviously, nobody wants school shootings. It is just that is universally agreed on. But the idea that schools are a less safe place or or are sort of a hub, a center of school shootings gives uh, administrations of schools sort of free reign to spend as much money as, as they can, basically, on security systems and safety systems, which may or may not, you know, always work as intended. There's a great time New York Times article this week about how sometimes the security systems don't even sort of work properly. They cost a huge amount, but they don't always do what they say. And and nobody would know that until an emergency happens. It reminds me of sort of it's I feel like it's a microcosm of sort of dis- defense spending writ large, right? Mm-hmm. Something happens, scares the heck out of everybody, and then just money starts pouring, pouring, pouring into the solution, even though it's not necessarily clear that money is has been the problem. Um, well, but- this is this is part of why it's so important for folks in edtech to pay attention to what's going on legislatively, because much of the money coming to schools is actually not going to teaching and learning. It's right. going to all of these other ancillary things. Meanwhile, most of the administrators and educators are there for the teaching and learning. And so finding ways to actually improve the efficacy, whether it's safety and security, healthcare access, those are, are ways in which you can actually create space for the educators to be educators. You know, on the policy horizon ahead, 
we can see new bills and initiatives that on one hand um, question the tax status of private schools and religious schools, and that's part of the backlash around Roe versus Wade. We also see policy coming up around kids and social media related to mental health, another area that's adjacent to teaching and learning, but not direct. So the this Congress, especially as it heads to the fall midterm elections, is desperate to you know push policy through that will lead to meaningful change. But both parties still seem to be in such different directions that it's pretty uncertain times in this landscape. Yeah, and so so we've talked about <laughs> about Roe v. Wade. We've talked a little bit about the gun legislation. One other recent policy coming in into schools in the U.S. is uh, is the "Don't Say Gay" bills that have been sort of started in Florida, but now there's about 15 states that are starting to consider legislation about basically you know the discussion of gender identity in in schools. And there was a really, uh, I think, really heartbreaking uh, editorial in the Heckinger Report this week from a um, LGBTQ student saying that having a supportive adults and teachers who you can turn to is incredibly important for LGBTQ plus students and that having an accepting adult in in one's life makes a, a makes a student 40% less likely to attempt suicide. So sort of citing all these statistics and saying, hey, this is the the flip side, uh, you know, the, the maybe un, unintended consequence of this bill is that by removing the ability to discuss gender identity in schools, you actually remove an entire support system for students. I thought it was a really well-written editorial and just something that I hadn't really, uh, it hadn't really crossed my my radar, and I hadn't thought about it in this way before. And I think it's it's something where you know, as this country just continues to have these culture wars at every level, and as the governor of Florida is sort of quite likely to become a presidential candidate, I think we're just seeing this performative politics that has enormous consequences on people that they it's just not unforeseen or or people don't care about. What do you think about the don't say gay stuff, Ben? It's so it's so it's so sad. Yeah, and it not only is it sad, but you know, there we're asking schools to do so much and then we're putting rules on, you yeah, know, we're sure. saying support the whole child, do everything you can. It's exactly. not just teaching and learning, but oh by the way, you know, here's all the third rails politically that we're going to thrust upon you and it creates a state of paralysis. So our headline number two is actually about ISTE conference in New Orleans, and it's been a buzz with these types of conversations around the politics of education. You know, at the ISTE conference, it's in some ways a form of group therapy after two years of what has been a pretty crazy time in K-12 education. There's an article that was published where it said, there's a call for a major infusion of joy. We need more joy in the teaching profession. (laughs) But many of these political headwinds are actually creating barriers to teachers continuing on with the profession. I was sitting down with a a leader at Curriculum Associates, and they said that typically when they post a, a curriculum role on their team, they get between 200 and 300 applications from educators, which is great. You know, they sort through them and they find somebody. Now, with recent postings, they're getting between three and 4,000 applications per posting. Holy moly. And so the kind of um, constant reminder that educators are burned out and looking to pivot away from the classroom 
that's very present. The second is um, there are some really um, new sales models in K-12 that rely on educator kind of community. And what you're seeing is a lot of educator ambassador programs here at ISTE with the idea of bottoms up sales. Um, some of this is new and some of this is not new. Freemium is of course a well-trodden path for tech companies to grow, but given the current macro environment, the dynamic of large sales teams selling enterprise through senior leaders at hundred to million dollar contracts, that era feels like it's past. And so you're seeing that with a lot of these events here geared to gin up educator community. Point three on the ISTE conference is consolidation is here. When you look at the Microsoft booth and you realize that they're, you know, Minecraft, Flipgrid, all of these different education brands that they've rolled into one, they seem to be the big tech winner here at the conference. Yep. And you also look at things like Amplify Curriculum Associates and a few other vertically power school, for example, they are really making a big presence. And then Baiju's is here with a bunch of different brands and a relatively incoherent go-to-market articulation, but their booths are great and they're handing out lots of free stuff. Um, <laughs> so the like kind of the fourth point I have on the ISTE, so one was, you know, macro politics shaping uh, teachers leaving. Number two was really about this move towards consolidation. The third point I would say is what we're also looking at is a bunch of people who bought ISTE booths like six or 12 months ago. And so there's somebody who has like an RV camper that's been fitted out for ISTE. There's all kinds of lavish setups. And you just kind of wonder how much of that was like prepaid that people are now like, man, I wish we had half the spend. And so <laughs> it'll, it'll be really worth watching um, coming up in a year from now when it's in Philadelphia. So all in all, ISTE has been great. It's great to be on the ground. Uh, definitely feel, you know, educators are happy to be in person. They're getting sloppy on Bourbon Street at night. <laughs> but great conversations and, and so much energy, despite all the headwinds around what's possible in our space. It's a it's a great analysis, Ben. I, I you know unfortunately can't be at ST this year, but I feel like I'm virtually there hearing your uh, your on the ground coverage of it. I can definitely see that. A couple of just quick reactions to that. I really think Microsoft doesn't get enough credit as as an ed tech company, but they have done some very smart acquisitions in the past, and I think they've taken a very different approach than the Googles and Apples and certainly then then Meta and Amazon and other big tech companies in that they really choose acquisitions that are really sort of like killer apps. And they're very careful with them. I mean, Minecraft, even when Microsoft bought Minecraft, it was already one of the biggest properties in the world in gaming. It was this sort of, you know, superstar Swedish developer, Gojang, I think it was called, but it, it continues to, to dominate yeah. Things like, you know, Roblox are obviously based entirely, it's the next generation of Minecraft, but it's still there. Microsoft just bought Activision Blizzard, which gives them an enormous accelerant on the metaverse and, and gaming. They bought LinkedIn, which had bought Linda, which gives them an enormous amount of uh, incredible content and for workforce. I think they're sort of the dark horse of the 
the race that people don't think about Microsoft as a, as this sort of power player, but they really are. And it's great to hear that that it's sort of coming out now at ST. Yeah, they're definitely under the radar. And I think they're happy to let um, Facebook, right. Meta, as well as Google and Amazon take the heat. One, one thing that you also mentioned there is they're vertically integrated across K-12, higher ed, and workforce. And we are seeing that here at ISTE. One of the big players here is Class Technologies, which yep. is built on the Zoom platform. And both Zoom and Class are here in full force. And we're seeing the edtech landscape growing in higher ed, but also vertically integrating. So our third topic was just some pretty incredible news around that higher ed space and especially emerging edtech companies kind of changing the game. What do you have on that? Yeah, so speaking of class technologies, there was a really interesting interview with with Michael Chasen, who is the CEO of Class and former one of the former founders of Blackboard, about sort of the the landscape that we're all in right now. And it was really interesting. You know, the, the moment when when the pandemic sort of came down on everybody and shifted all of our ideas about what online education, you know, is or could be or or has to be an emergency. Um, I thought he had some really good points to make that I was, you know, impressed about, impressed by the way he was sort of analyzing it, which is, you know, he mentions how a few years ago, pre-pandemic, it was very much feeling like the future of ed tech was going to be asynchronous. It's cheaper to scale. It's much easier to to handle large groups of students. And it was just sort of, and and, and honestly, people just weren't that excited about the idea of doing synchronous online classes. They, they were moving away from it, it was start seen as a little bit old fashioned, and um, and that's flipped enormously. And obviously, you know, if you're the CEO of class, you you want that to flip. It's not that this is a neutral analysis, but I I do think he makes really good points about the sort of the more you can make a live online environment feel rich and communicative and exciting and like the best of in person learning, the better you know education, the better off education will be, and. Combined with everything you're saying and that we've covered on this podcast about the teacher burnout, I think there's a really good case to be made that that at least hybrid and maybe even pure online ed, especially synchronous or take a humongous bite out of what we have thought about as as, you know, education. It might be that more than than you'd ever imagine of of college of K-12 actually happens online and companies like Class and Engagely and several other players who are really trying to change that landscape. Eduflow, I think, does a really interesting job of this sort of LMS that incorporates different kinds of input. Really may be the, and Zoom, may be the the, the biggest ed tech companies. I, I don't think this is something, I, as somebody I've been a longtime fan of asynchronous education, I'm starting to really see the value and come around. That That's one of the big things that's coming out. There's some other cool things happening in EdTech this week. So uh, Emerge Education, our, our friends across the pond in the UK, had some really great events this week where they are basically announcing their 50 emerging higher ed and their 50 emerging workforce ed tech companies. And Emerge is, in my for my money, one of the smartest VCs in the space. They have really, really well-informed theses. They really think deeply about the trends in ed tech. So I definitely recommend looking at what they're how they're uh, how they're picking their 50 top companies for right now. Some of the companies are going to be ones we've all heard of. Anybody who listens to this podcast will listen will, will recognize. Others will not. You're also seeing something, a couple of really cool models that I'm just really excited about. We'll obviously check in on how they go over time. But the European Education Alliance 
which is a group of each individual European country's EdTech alliances all put together. It's a very EU kind of thing to do, combined with Supercharger Ventures, have been putting together a, an EdTech female fellowship. I think they're in their second cohort, but they're really working to accelerate female leadership in EdTech, which is something that is, you know, been woefully under underrepresented for too long in education. You know, we've always talked about how there's so, you know, the, the percentage of educators who are female is incredibly high. The percentage of ed tech founders has been historically way too low. So the EdTech Female Fellowship is really cool to see. Replit, which is a coding and EdTech coding platform. They might not even call themselves EdTech, but I think they are. EdTech coding platform just launched an accelerator of their own, a Replit Ventures, where they're accelerating 13 companies in the in the coding space and in the online education space. So we're starting to see, just as you're starting to see consolidation at the top and all of these big companies acquiring acquiring the middle tier companies and sort of putting together these stacks like Baidu's and Microsoft and, and Google to some extent, you're also seeing some of the, the, the players down in the, in, the, in the dirt sort of finding really, really smart people all over the world who are looking to often come out of the classroom or come out of business school and start the whole next generation of ed tech. I just think there's more enthusiasm among young people than I've seen in 10 years for ed tech. And I think just this crazy unsettled moment is actually creating a lot of creativity and a lot of momentum for the space. Well, and this is where, you know, the outcomes of the financial slowdown right now are very different depending on your time horizon. If you're early stage or series A investor, it's actually a great time to invest and to grow companies because you're getting a good valuation as an investor. And you're also looking at a market maturity date of like six to seven years from now. And so at that point, who knows what the market is look going to look like, but you know, you estimate that things are cyclical and that it will be back somewhere in a stronger place. I also think that in general, back to your original point from Michael Chasen from class, we've we've crossed the bridge. We're not going back to only a hundred percent in-person education across K-12 higher ed and workforce. Like especially higher ed and workforce, there is no going back to in-person. In fact, you have to justify now your in-person overhead and expense. Now, the with any technology, the question is, how do you move from substitution, where it's literally just taking what you did in person and, and putting it online, to actually transformation or reimagining, you know, the SAMR model is the common one that people use. Definitely, you know, talking to a lot of CEOs here, you know, when I talk to educators, there's a sense of burnout and politics and challenge. But when you talk to the CEOs, there's a sense of on the longer term, I've never felt more bullish about our ability to impact people. And part of that is your total addressable market is way larger now, given that people are willing to dial in from anywhere. And that could be everything from I can now provide professional development at a fraction of the cost because I can deliver that all virtually. So no plane ride or hotel, or it could be the learning experience that I launch. I can have 30,000 users rather than 300 users because the lecture course at the university can now be open to all, or it can be on your sales model. I don't have to fly reps across the world. I can have somebody who really understands the product get online and sell and people are buying and selling. So 
all in all, that like positive energy, I think is is here for the three to five years. Now on the on the downside, the layoffs have continued. So that's our headline number four. We saw several startups laying off. The big one is Masterclass, laying off 20% of its staff. Masterclass, as you may have heard, was the darling of venture capital just four or five years ago. The idea of bringing the greatest minds in the world, creating high quality, super well-produced classes, and your mom can learn cooking from a master chef or acting from Robert De Niro. And, you know, this layoff of about 120 people really is taking some of the shine or shimmer off of Masterclass. Of course, the CEO's message is that the change was made to adapt to the worsening macro environment and get to self-sustainability faster. But there are real questions about these high burn models where content creation is very costly and then monetization is spread out through scale. The alternative, you know, you're also seeing a lot of creator economy companies laying people off too, which is generally viewed as the alternative content creation model where you have a community of content providers creating your supply of content. So there's no real magic wand here, no secret sauce. How much of this do you think is masterclass just getting caught up in the macro trend versus a a conclusion about Masterclass's model that might be relevant to EdTech? I think that Masterclass (laughs) benefited from swimming pretty directly against the grain of most EdTech companies. It was always B2C. It's a subscription model. It's modeled much more after Netflix and Hulu than on Power School or, or, uh, or Class Dojo or anything like that. And I think that was really fantastic for them for quite a while. It, they they weren't limited to an education audience at all. Their classes are not really framed even as, as regular education. They have Stefan Curry, they have Spike Lee, they have Neil Gaiman and James Patterson. I think that after the pandemic and as people are getting back to regular life, a lot of streaming services have been in trouble, including Netflix. And I think Masterclass is caught up in that macro environment. I mean, it's arguable that if Masterclass is even an ed tech company at all, and I, I love Masterclass. I have finished probably seven Masterclass classes. I'm not, I am not saying that as a, as a negative thing, but Masterclass in a lot of ways is a, is a consumer entertainment company. And I think consumer entertainment companies have got, have really suffered. So I don't think in terms of the lessons that, that I take for ed tech, I think maybe the lesson could be that it, it felt until very recently, like B2C, direct, you know, D2C, direct to consumer and, and business consumer models were a safer bet. But maybe people will look at Masterclass, which is about as safe a bet as you can think of when you have that level of celebrity and say, oh, well, actually, now the school budgets are getting bigger. They're willing to spend a lot more money on on different things. They have all this uh, relief funds, and it can be, you know, contracts. I know that that model might be going away to your point earlier, Ben, but maybe there's actually some power in the B2S models instead of the B2C. That would be the potential takeaway of Masterclass. But realistically, I think it's just that they're caught in the uh, in the sort of downturn of entertainment. Well, and the ups and downs of B2C models are harder to navigate because of um, higher churn in any direct-to-customer model. Yep. You know, I've talked to a number of people in the last few weeks and made the point that 
actually education B2B is quite recession proof. If you look at the last 30 years of total spend in education, whether it's K-12 or higher ed, the spend has never gone down. Even in the housing crash in 09, the spend stayed roughly flat. And especially now that you've got educator shortages at all levels, you know, that's normally 80% of the spend. And so if you've got these vacancies, that actually means disposable income that you could be spending to close the gaps with those vacancies. So obviously, you know, our view is we'd like to have teachers well paid and all all of those positions filled. But if those positions are open, that's actually a really reliable revenue opportunity. And it's in some ways B2B education, healthcare, and like liquor and alcohol. Those are counter cyclical <laughs> bets because they survive every recession. Yeah. Unlike entertainment options that, you know, like masterclass where spending uh, X dollars per year on, on this type of class makes sense when you are stuck in your house. But when you are back to work, even if it's virtual work, maybe it becomes less of an appeal. Uh, and they, I'm sure they're having lots of, of subscriber churn. Well, speaking of people who are on the up and up, let's um, go with funding and M&A highlights. What do you have this week on the funding front? Yeah, so the biggest funding round that we came across this week was Leap raising $75 million. That's pretty serious. Leap has multiple different platforms providing test prep, university selection services, financing services to students all over the world. It is a India-based company, but they've been working with hundreds of thousands of students all over the world to help people get into colleges around the world. So $75 million, that's a pretty big boost for uh, for the Indian ed tech space. Yeah, yes. I was also following JobGet and Fountain. And I know you've been really deep in that space, Alex. JobGet got $52 million and Fountain last week raised $100 million. Oh. What's your take on that space? So the, the, these are both companies that are around about trying to help blue collar workers, which is a, a space, you know, when, when you mentioned, Ben, the changes to the workforce environment, one of the things that's been really interesting in the change from in-person to online is that in-person training in, in, in the corporate space was very much targeted towards leaders. You'd have managers and C-suites getting all of these amazing retreats to learn and all these things. And as they move to uh, to more online, it actually opens up that budget and changes it because it's not that much more expensive to give online training to many more people instead of tens of thousands per person for leadership development. So we're seeing companies now that are really focusing on managing blue-collar workforces or training blue-collar workforces. And that's what JobGet and Fountain are both about. JobGet has 12 million blue-collar workers signed up to use their platform, which is really exciting. It's a sort of social media it's a social media platform for blue-collar workers that involve that also includes job postings, but there's, a, I think, an education component to it as well. And then you have Fountain, which is about large employers bringing their blue-collar workforce online as well. So I think you're, you're seeing this revolution where I remember seeing a really interesting stat once about the among college graduates, LinkedIn was the number one social media platform, but among non-college graduates, I think it was Instagram or Facebook. And I think you're, people are recognizing that gap and saying, we're going to make really good social media, job search, and education platforms for blue-collar workers. I think it's a great, I think it's a great move. I also think it's fascinating that Fountain is coming from the employer side around upskilling, 
uh, acquiring and training, whereas job get is coming from the employee side and empowering the employee to build their skills and find jobs. And in some ways, you need both sides of that ecosystem to work. On the smaller side, we had Wilco raising $7 million. And Wilco provides game-like workplace simulations, such as um, being notified via the workplace messaging app about a mysterious issue with the company's application. And basically, it's a skill-based learning platform where people or employees have to react to scenarios. Now, there's a, a degree to which their their growth at, at Wilco is connected to HackerRank, which raids about $60 million in fundraising back in March. HackerRank is simulation software mainly focused at, at developers. And so this model of you know simulations reminds me of business schools. Right. Uh, they often use like a case study method. And so as we see both on the tech side with HackerRank or generalist side with Wilco, people are leaning into more progressive models. Also, we had Neil, which facilitates a membership community that upskills and deploys people on paid consulting projects. They raised $5 million. And, you know, consulting projects are, are another form of experiential learning. And basically, they bring members together and they have a Web3 driven ownership structure, kind of like a management consultancy. But the idea is that the projects are both an opportunity to earn revenue for the company, but also a chance for people to upskill. We saw Cinematic Health Education raise $4 million for video training content specifically for uh, certified nursing assistants and health professionals. That's a really exciting space and with a, a huge amount of job growth. Um, we talked recently to uh, to Troy Williams of Achieve Partners, where they acquired Boclips, which is a really interesting company that also does that kind of video content and saves everybody money by doing really high quality video content that can be used in multiple arenas. Just on the Wilco space, you know, any longtime listeners of the podcast will, will recognize that we are, at least I am, always looking for companies that are going to do more authentic simulations. It feels so like such a gap. I'm really excited to to, to see their workforce simulations in action. Uh, that's really, really great. And then lastly, our friend of the podcast, Ope Bukola, raised $2 million for Kibo School. Anybody who's listened to Kibo School, you listen for a while, recognize that Kibo School provides computer science degrees, very low cost, about $6,000 to students in Africa, specifically Kenya, Nigeria, and Ghana. And they won the GSV Cup this year. So Good for Ope. Ope is an amazing entrepreneur, and I, I'm really excited to see that they're getting some money to expand in their target cities and even do some in-person meetups. Well, on the M&A front, we see uh, big companies trying to get bigger. GoGuardian and Degreed made our headlines. On the GoGuardian side, they acquired TutorMe, where they're adding essentially TutorMe as their one-on-one -on -one online tutoring platform. It's really interesting because GoGuardian started as really a safety platform. And the fact that they're trying to become now the quote unquote ultimate learning platform is a really interesting shift. It also makes me wonder about the timing of the deal and was TutorMe, you know, suffering post pandemic? Because during the pandemic, they had over 1.5 million students with free access to one on one guidance 24 7. They had incredible growth and this kind of live one-to-one, -one, you know, always made me wonder, how are they able to sustain that? On the degreed side, 
they actually reacquired their former CEO and founder, David Blake. So D David Blake left a degree, I think he was still chairman of the board. But in 2018, he started Learn In, as well as this uh, online book club. And he essentially was brought back onto the leadership team at DeGreed. It's hard to know whether this was like an acquire or a true acquisition, but ultimately he's now at the helm again of DeGreed. And, you know, for those who have been, who are OGs in the space, DeGreed was one of the first ed tech companies to really make it big. And bringing David Blake back is a return to their, you know, kind of successful management formula. What they, were your thoughts Oh, yeah. yeah. So so a, a part of the degree story as well is that David Blake's brother, Taylor Blake, who is also one of the sort of lead folks at Degreed for a long time, was at, at some point also the sort of CEO and founder of LearnIn. So there, this is a, a really uh, an ed tech family that are very, very, very smart. Yeah, I I can't tell exactly whether, you know, wh whether it's an aqua hire or how it sort of works. But I do think that Degree and Learning have some similar, have a lot of similar DNA, uh, both corporate DNA and, and family DNA in that, you know, Learning is really about sort of paid, almost learning sabbaticals. At least that's that's my understanding of it. So trying to give their, their thesis is that, you know, employees should be learning on an ongoing basis throughout their life. We all sort of agree with that in theory, but they often don't have actually time to do it. So learning sort of creates a model where companies can actually give their employees time to go upskill in particular areas instead of having to do, you know, weekends and nights for years, which I think is a fantastic idea. And I think it goes really well with the Greed's model of bringing together content from anywhere so that people are lifelong learners, even as their employees. And as for the GoGuardian acquisition, I mean, talk about being, you know, in the right in the right space right now at EdTech. I mean, as we just talked about, the spending on safety in schools has skyrocketed over the last few years. So a company like GoGuardian suddenly finds itself with lots of contracts all over the place. There's nearly 25 million K-12 students are signed up for GoGuardian in one way or another. That's about half of the students in America. And then they move into the tutoring space right as the pandemic, had, or, you know, right sort of at the end of when the pandemic has just absolutely exploded the tutoring space. It's a very smart strategy. I mean, because how could a school leader right now not invest in a company that's going to combine school safety and uh, on-demand tutoring that's designed for different learning styles? It's about, That's like the two sides of the coin in school, in K-12 schools right now. So I'm bullish on uh, on GoGuardian's acquisition. It's very smart. Well, and this is a this is them firing a signal saying we're going to be one of the roll up companies. Yep. It does make you wonder. You know, does GoGuardian get gobbled up by a private equity firm to continue funding this roll up? Are they the next one to go public? Because you know, from a public market standpoint, GoGuardian has to be high on the profitability side, given the security services that they provide in that part of the business. And so this move into tutoring should be a warning shot to people like paper who are not diversified oh, yeah. in their revenue, that not only is there consolidation in your vertical, but you may have to consolidate across verticals so that as you're selling into schools, districts, or higher ed, you, you are essentially bringing a bundle of products that can help you maximize that uh, relationship. So one more late breaking headline. 
As of a couple of days ago, Baijus is said to have offered over a billion dollars to acquire to you. This is according to a Bloomberg report reported on as well by Phil Hill, education journalist extraordinaire. This would basically be a global push for Baijus to be able to enter the U.S. They are saying the offer is about $15 a share to to you's board. This is all in rumor state. The bid is not yet public, but this would be a 60% premium on the current stock price of 2U. This is definitely a big deal in the ed tech space. It's going to be up to 2U's board whether to accept this or not. But if they do, and if Baiju's acquires 2U, not only are they acquiring 2U, they're acquiring edX, Trilogy Education, Get Smarter, and all of 2U's university partnerships. It is a very big deal for the U.S. ed tech space and the international ed tech space and potentially for Baiju's. We will follow this story as it develops. Definitely check it out if this is of interest to you. Make sure that you are following this news. So we're going to be off here for the month of July. Our predictions, so we, we're going to our game. Alex, our game this week is three predictions you have for the month of July in that tech space, and feel free to be generous with that. And then we'll come back in August and see which of those came true. And and so I'll I'll get started first. Like one, I would say this trend of consolidation. I expect other deals to be made, maybe may or may not be announced. July is a common time for the industry to go quiet, and then we'll see a bevy of announcements in August right as we get to back to school. Number two, I think the the lack of employees. So there is a teacher crisis for sure. That's not new news. But there's also an incredible lack of all the other roles from reading specialists to secretaries at schools to office managers in higher ed. I'm hearing about a lot of open positions. And generally, when the economy tightens up, those positions, you know, fill up because people have have, you know, needs for employment. But the brand of education of uh, around how low the pay is and how hard it is to work, I think we're going to reach crisis levels where schools are going to be in jeopardy of being able to open successfully in August. And then the third thing that I think we're going to hear about is cybersecurity. The last year and the year before, all of the big hacks happened in August. And student data, lots of issues with the student um, information systems, And the most vulnerable time is when you are in the summer and your IT team is working their butts off. They're switching you over to new tech stacks and things like that. So, you know, if I'm listening to this podcast and I run a school district, I'm really trying to think about, okay, how are we going to deploy all of our technology changes so that when August 1, all of our educators come back, it's all set up. That also creates vulnerabilities in the system and creates errors. So I I'm going to be watching out for news about that type of thing. What about you? What are some trends that you expect to accelerate? Yeah, those those are great predictions. So my first trend that I'd expect to accelerate, it's a little bit, it's a, it, it overlaps with your take about teacher shortages. But I think that as the summer rolls on and as the entire education ecosystem starts to realize the much of what you just said, that when that coming back in September, there's going to be way too few teachers, way too few special ed teachers, way too few guidance counselors. You know, th- there's really going to be 
a little bit of a haunted house feeling in some of the some districts. I think some very intrepid edtech companies, especially some of the ones that already specialize in homeschooling or micropods or companies like uh, Outlier, Kaipod that we've talked to, are going to start offering basically full alternative to schools and pretty aggressively um pretty aggressively advertising for them. I mean, the combination of this Uvalde shooting and and the teacher shortage and the pandemic and still Omicron variants bouncing around, I think there's a really interesting opportunity for some of these edtech companies to go kind of whole hog and basically try to either convince or meet the needs of all of the parents who are really on the fence about whether they're going to send their kids back to school in September. And it's going to be a really interesting sort of arms race. I I think you're going to see a lot of companies, some of which are the bigger players, some of which maybe some of the 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 smaller ones, like we talked to Prisma Health, uh, not Health, we talked to Prisma recently about, you know, their model. I I think there's going to be a little bit of a, um, a sort of Wild West feeling where people, instead of going back to traditional school, start start shopping around for different versions of school. That's going to be really interesting to see. I have seen more and more signals about uh, Meta really trying to lean into their education plans. There's some really interesting uh, ads that they're running. There's some interesting plans they've been sort of hinting at. And I think what we're also going to see this year is Meta make a very full-throated call to basically try to be the metaverse of the of, of for education. And as we've talked about on this show, there are other viable candidates, including Unity, including Microsoft, including a number of other VR companies. But I think you're going to start hearing a lot more in a lot more frequent cadence about how, you know, the future is meta the future of education is a metaverse and that is a meta a meta property. I think they're going to really lean into education in the metaverse. That may include some acquisitions. It may, it would definitely include lots of partnerships and that'll be interesting to watch. And and the third is, you know, we've seen these incredibly mixed signals from Indian ed tech over the last few months. I think, you know, every week there's either a scandal on one side or a expansion or another, or these big, you know, $75 million rounds coming to different companies or a new unicorn. I would guess that when we come back in August, I actually think Indian EdTech is going to be on a little bit of a, a rebound. I think it's going to be on the up and up for some of the same reasons. I think you're going to see that in India, there's also a, even though India has snapped back much faster to in-person schooling than than the U.S. has, I think there's still going to be a little bit of a shakeup. And I think, you know, Baiju's has been the standard bearer for India for a long time, Indian EdTech, but we're seeing companies like Unicademy, and Leap and others sort of become much more visible. And I think that what's going to happen is those companies will realize that they maybe don't want Baiju's to be the, the first name in Indian ed tech. And you're going to start seeing some more concerted efforts to sort of raise the, the profile of the sector uh, in a sort of post-Baiju's Indian ed tech world. I, we'll see what that looks like, but that that's my prediction for the end of the summer. Well, if it happens in July in EdTech, you'll hear about it here in August on the Week in EdTech. Thank you all for listening this year. Thank you for everyone who's been a part of making Season 1 so successful. Special shout out to all the interviewees that we've had on the podcast. And a shout out to our families who've supported us on this passion project. We're excited to take some time off this summer, enjoy Alex's long-form interviews, and we'll see you again in August. Signing out. BK out.
for our guest today, we have a really exciting guest. It's Quinn Tabor, who's the CEO of Immerse. Immerse is a virtual reality-based immersive language learning program that is being launched in the Meta Store. It's the first direct-to-consumer education app in VR and is quickly becoming the number one VR education app in the Meta Store. Welcome, Quinn. Yeah, thanks, Alex. It's a treat to be here. Thanks for having me on. I'm really excited to have you here. You know, so tell us a little bit about the story of Immerse. How did you get to this moment? How long have you been in the VR space? How did it get to this really exciting launch? Yeah, thanks, Alex. It's it's probably like three key seasons. The first season that lays a little bit of the groundwork. I I actually grew up overseas with parents who worked in philanthropy. I then worked for a large impact investor and philanthropist right out of college for three years, traveled to like 50 countries, lived in refugee camps and slums, and ultimately got super fired up on the power of language learning for opening doors for the least of these people that are looking for visas or study abroad or uh, just employment. And the core of it really, in my experience, and all of the learning science pointing to immersion. If you want to learn a language, you have to practice with real people in real places, have real conversations. And right as I was experiencing that, VR was coming onto the scene. So 2016, 2017, I started business modeling and then pitching and raised the first little round of funding. And thankfully, one of my best pals was a stud VR engineer at the time. So we built the first prototype in early 2018. And at that time, there were less than a million VR users globally. Like we were early, early. So it kind of almost forced our hand to license our tech and Meta's headsets to some of the big education companies around the world. So we have deals with the largest education company in Japan, the largest in the Middle East, one of the largest in Europe, a large one in LATAM. And we're able to really battle test our technology, and in the process, build the first ever proprietary metaverse curriculum, pedagogy, a lot of these like critical building blocks. And then fast forward a couple of years, we've been steadily building when a key headline hits, Facebook rebrands to meta, and they are yeah. going all in on the metaverse. So it, it like as that happens, we're able to raise more funding, but then meta calls us up and says, Quinn, up until now, VR has been used as like a supplemental tool in the classroom. It's a little add-on. You can maybe watch some immersive recordings or do an immersive chemistry experiment in the safety of VR. But in the metaverse, we think VR is going to disrupt all of education, not just be this little add-on. And your app is the best positioned to go and launch the first ever direct-to-consumer classes and experiences and programs. So that's exactly what we did. Today, as I'm talking to you, it's June 30th. Exactly seven days ago, we launched the first ever direct-to-consumer learning experiences where you can sign up on your headset for classes, for immersive experiences, activities. You can hang out in our VR learning lounges with other learners to practice your Spanish. And then in about three months, we're, we're going from just Spanish, we're going to launch English. And then in the spring, we're launching French and Japanese. So that's that's kind of the unique moment that we're in. We're really proud to to be pioneering in a lot of ways to say, hey, let's not just kind of think about how we can use VR as this small add-on to the classroom experience. Let's redefine learning entirely using all of the affordances, all of the capabilities 
of virtual reality. It's fantastic. I mean, talk about skating where the puck is going. You're you're doing a VR immersive language learning for years before the meta headsets, you know, exist in the way they do before Facebook becomes meta. And suddenly you have this incredible distribution platform, which is the meta store. We've talked on the on the podcast a lot about how the metaverse is becoming education is one of the sort of beachheads of the metaverse, which we've been really excited about. You know, you can technically do anything in a metaverse. It's just a virtual world. But education is something that people really, really see the vision of. Tell us a little bit about how you see education as sort of the bleeding edge of what can happen in metaverse technology generally. Yeah, man, it's it's such a good question, Alex. You're you're entirely correct. I'll, uh, I'll kind of, without sharing some of the confidential conversations, I've had chats with senior leadership at Meta, and they've said exactly that. VR, right now, it's known for gaming. But the next most natural and really immersive field is going to be education. You're going to see a lot in STEM, biology, chemistry. You're going to see a lot in engineering, there's a couple buddies of mine that run some of the major like enterprise upskilling companies like Striver and Tailspin that help companies train their employees on soft skills and HR practices. I think the the thing that I spend so much of my time thinking about, talking about building a team that's focused on is asking the question, okay, let's not just take our 2D expectations for right. what a chemistry class looks like, but let's let's really almost go back to the first principles and reimagine what these different academic fields will look like in 10, 20 years. Cast that big vision. And then let's build a let's build a roadmap to get there. So for us, it wasn't a, hey, let's let's just record some Spanish speakers in VR and let people watch it. The, right. the core building blocks of the metaverse are that it's social, that it's persistent, that it's real world, that it's gamified. So let's let's create the first metaverse for learning where people can enter into our virtual world. They can go on these learning missions. They can meet with teachers live. They can do homework together. Let's reimagine it from the ground up and build an entire ecosystem and world around learning, which for us, we're once again, we're proud that we're the, we're the first ones to really break ground in that way. Super exciting. I remember working with uh, Barbara Oakley, who's one of the big Coursera professors, and she would always say, to teach chemistry, you should shrink yourself down to the size of an atom and go and see how things are bonded. And she's like, that's, and you know, that's finally available to do in the metaverse. So I want this to feel very real for our listeners, because I mean, please go check out Immerse, get in there, but give us the sort of day in the life. So you sign up for Immerse, on the Meta Store, what is your experience? Tell us what it actually looks like to be immersed in a language-based yeah, oh, Meta. Oh, cool. So probably the most surprising thing for a lot of users is that everything that we do is live. We actually don't have any pre-recordings. When you get into it, both the, from the business side, the average learner has taken a lot of Duolingo and not felt a ton of tangible success. And they know that for this next step, they want to meet with real people. So that's, that's the first thing is you're going to enter, you're going to go through this really fun, immersive 3D tutorial, learning the controls and some of our like pedagogical frameworks. But then the first thing you're going to do is quite literally within VR, or we've got a little companion like web and mobile platform where you can schedule your orientation with a real teacher any time of the day. Say so like, oh, okay, I'm free in 20 minutes. I want to go through my orientation. And then maybe if that's 3 p.m. at 5 p.m., I want to come back and I want to take my first 
language lesson where it's really focused on maybe that grammar concept for the day and then using it in relocations. The probably the most fun ones though are what we call our like immersive experiences where you aren't just drilling grammar or vocab, you're practicing real life tasks, but completely immersed. So if you're learning Spanish, we aren't going to say, oh, we're going to teach you this in English. We're going to take you to the airport and have you practice checking in through the entire security, working to get your ticket printed, yeah, all the way to getting onto the plane, all in Spanish with a small group of other learners and a certified Spanish teacher that's quite literally in that virtual context with you. And then within the platform, you can book that those types of lessons, like I said, 24-7. So you'll, whether it's any of those different types of activities, they're available around the clock to you. So, so it's immersive in that the learners are in groups with other people who are learning the language as well as a native speaker, and they're actually performing real tasks or attending virtual lessons. They can be, yeah, as you say, an airport or a library or a grocery store or a post office or all the, all the things we learn when we learn a new language you can uh-huh. actually be there doing it. Precisely. Yep, that's, that's exactly it. You've got it, Alex. And how are, how are your users reacting to that? That sounds incredibly fun. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, so I'll, I'll honestly, <laughs> I'll be a little transparent and say, if you were to look at our reviews right now, of the last 50 reviews we've gotten, 10 of them have been surprised and confused because they're like, wait, this is an education app? I thought that, like, I thought we did gaming in VR or wait, you can meet with a real teacher? What the heck? Like, we've never even imagined this. But then the other 40 reviews are the students that have actually signed up, jumped in, met with a teacher, done some of these tasks. And the reviews, like from the cohort that's gone through our app, are almost all five stars. It's folks saying, oh my gosh, I'm finally using my language in a real context. The capacity of using an avatar, instead of like me being in Spain, I can feel like I'm in Spain, but I actually, my anxiety drops precipitously because it's in this fun, gamified 3D world. So across the board, we're really excited that our, our reviews have been so positive. I think the, the uphill battle is going to be just conveying the concept to the world with our, with our ads and our thought leadership of like, yeah, this, we really believe this is the future of education. It might take two, five, 10 years, but we're going to keep skating to where the puck is going. And we hope that everyone comes along for the ride. So I, <laughs> a little bit of a curveball question, but when do you think you're going to see your first marriage of people who met in immerse bro it's (laughs) that's a little too spot on the number of (laughs) students that have said hey so this whole language learning thing is awesome but (laughs) i've made some really cool friends and there's this one girl that's really really fun to be around like you might have a separate business model on your hands so we keep saying no we aren't getting into virtual dating (laughs) we'll let someone else figure that market out but Yes, we've got some funny anecdotal stories. <laughs> I can imagine. I can imagine. I would. Every virtual world has had. There's been marriages inside World of Warcraft. Oh, yeah. I know. In my Coursera days, we were always talking about. Hey, I wonder if we should do a dating app on the side. All these people are so excited to meet up. The only other person that is interested in Egyptology <laughs> that they've, you know, um, I, I think you're, you're you right. might be onto something there. We'll see. Where, we'll see where that goes. <laughs> so, Quinn, one more question. So, you're going to new languages. You're going to new languages throughout next year. When you go to English as a language, that is the number one most learned subject on the planet is English as a, as a language. 
Where do you see the international expansion here? Is this, are you going global on day one? Are you, are there particular markets that you're looking for, for English learning? How are you thinking about that English learning uh, audience? Really smart. Yeah, man, such a good question. And honestly, that's one of the key things that we're spending a lot of time doing market research on. The key markets that we've had success in thus far are in Asia Pacific, Japan, Korea, Taiwan, yep. Vietnam. We've we've had a couple deals in China, but from a geopolitical kind of lens, it's been a little bit challenging. So right now, and, and don't hold me to this, the first two markets that we're <laughs> going to really focus on and pour a lot of marketing into are going to be Japan and Korea. Mind you, gotcha. through a couple of partnerships that are still can't speak to quite yet, but there's a couple new headsets that are coming out this year that we're going to be on that are looking to compete with Meta. And we're, we're looking Exciting. to be their number one education platform. Each of those headsets have different markets that they're focused on. So just as an example, one of them is really focused on Germany. So I think that'll be probably the third market that we optimize for. But once we're, once we're on the platform and we're available, if you're in Chile, if you're in Kenya, you name it, and you've got a decent enough bandwidth to have a Zoom call, you can jump into VR and still sign up for a class. So we won't restrict access. It's more where we're we're really like focusing our go-to-market strategy on. And as somebody who's been all around the world, and you said 25, 50 countries, 50, uh, you know, yeah. you must have such a, such a global perspective on on where people are learning and how. I have one more. I said I promised that was the Please. last question, but I have one more. No, I can no, talk no, to you all this. So if your if your English language learning is starting in Japan. And then your Japanese learning is coming just a couple months after. Do you envision a world where you have native Japanese speakers learning English and native English speakers learning Japanese interacting in the metaverse? Yeah. Oh, that's such a fun one. Short answer, yes, one day. Absolutely. Like that's just, that's going to be such cool, low-hanging fruit. Right. The, <laughs> the functionality. Yes, exactly. The functionality, I think, is still probably a year, a year and a half out. There's a couple other projects that were really excited by and if it's all right i'll do like the the 30 second pitch for our investors and even the folks at meta and these two or three other hardware companies that we're partnering with they're really intrigued by not just us being a virtual world when it comes to oh there's the 3d scenes and the 3d characters but unlocking the full extent of the metaverse with things like virtual currency and virtual real estate and virtual certifications all leveraging the blockchain. So that's that's really the next big initiative that we're doing a lot of planning on. And I call before this call and after this call are on that subject. So in the next six to nine months, you're going to see a couple headlines that hopefully we make a big splash around. Okay, Immerse is the first true educational metaverse as defined by real world, uh, real people collaborating, but then even more so building virtual economies where we can better both reward our teachers for their hard work, but also reward our students for their learning, not just the satisfaction, but with blockchain-based certificates that they can take anywhere with them. Or even there's this really fun concept around play to earn right now in the metaverse where by mm-hmm. users engaging in the platform, they actually get a little bit of ownership over it through a virtual currency. That's one that just, oh, my imagination goes wild around. So that'll <laughs> yeah. that'll be the next thing that I think you'll hear from us. 
that I'm, yeah. I'm really excited to share. So you'll have to have me back I, on in a couple of months, Alex. Absolutely. Yeah, we'll definitely reconnect then. And then learn to earn models are starting to happen as well. So it sounds like you're, you're again, uh, ahead of the curve on that. So that's super exciting to hear. Quinn Tabor, thank you so much. I know this is a big week for you. You have thousands and thousands of signups for Immerse. Thanks for being here on Week in EdTech from EdTech Insiders. Appreciate it. Thanks, Alex. It was a total treat. Thanks for listening to this episode of the EdTech Insiders podcast. If you liked the episode, remember to subscribe on Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're listening on Apple, please leave a rating and review so others can find the podcast. For more EdTech Insiders content, subscribe to the EdTech Insiders newsletter at edtechinsiders.substack.com. Yeah.